If you're looking to buy or sell pre-IPO stock, SharesPost has a solution for you. Since 2009, SharesPost has transacted more than $4 billion in the top private tech companies. Proven, trustworthy, secure. Visit us at SharesPost.com. This week on Equity, we're talking about big news in the transportation space, Sequoia's massive new capital pool, and Andreessen Horowitz's new crypto fund. Hello and welcome to Equity. I'm Crunchbase News Editor-in-Chief Alex Wilhelm. Our usual Matthew Lindley is off today. We have Connie Loizos from TechCrunch. Hi, Connie. Hi, guys. How are you? Doing good. We also have Scott Bichuk, a partner at Norwest Venture Partners. Scott, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me. And uh, this week, we're going to start off with a bit of a thematic trio, if you will. But as you probably guessed, Bird is uh, first up because right before we recorded this, it was confirmed that they've closed a $300 million round led by Sequoia. So I'm really sorry to say, but it is once again uh, this week in scooters. Uh, I, I wish the we could drop it. Continues. Yeah, I, 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 I'm a little bored of it by now. I kind of want it to go away. But that amount of money um, from Sequoia is always going to cause a bit of a, of a splash, if you will. So the rumor was that this round puts about a $2 billion valuation on the company, which about 48 minutes ago was worth nothing because it didn't exist. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm shocked, but also not too surprised by this. I kind of want to get Scott's take. Scott, how do you feel about that amount of money for a scooter company? You know, it's, it's hard to say longer term, but I will tell you this. Um, the way I look at this is this is not just the future of scooters, but this is also the future of the on-demand economy in general. You know, you look at what's happened with Lyft um, raising $600 million uh, in this recent round. And I think, the, I think the future is becoming clearer. It's not just about on-demand uh carpooling and cars, but it's bikes and now it's scooters, it's food products and delivery. And you got to start thinking about what this means on a global basis. So is a a $300 million round a large round for this? Maybe not. It's a capital intensive type of business. And so I think there's a lot of implications longer term to actually grow this. And maybe we'll find out longer term that $600 million uh, to lift was actually a small round relative to all of these different areas that they that they want to nail. Uh, to Scott's point about Lyft, I mean, I think so Lyft also raised a ton of money uh, today. But, you know, Lyft is also trying to get into the scooter business. I mean, it's sort of interesting to me that these car companies, uh, Lyft and Uber, have both applied for e-scooter permits in San Francisco. Uh, the city's going to be giving out five of these. So it's a very uh, sort of interesting that these guys are kind of following a little bit uh, behind Bird, which is the younger company that just raised $300 million today. Well, I mean, it's 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 comparative, kind of both top and bottom. So we can say three hundred million dollars for Bird compared to you know the multi billion dollar amounts that Lyft and Uber have raised is not much. But for a company that wasn't really born eighteen twenty four months ago, it's still an insane amount of capital and value creation because the company has to be able to consume that amount of cash responsibly, spend it well, and then you know not squander it. And it's hard to do that effectively. Companies need to mature into certain amounts of spend. Um, but to Scott's point about it being capital intensive, I mean, $300 million will buy you a lot of scooters. So I, my presumption here is that this, uh, in the expansion sense, will push them more across the United States and also into other 
uh, you know, foreign markets. But absolutely, I was going to say, I think you know, they're already spending a lot of time in China. I think the idea these days is companies have to, you know, hit the ground running. This company is not going to sort of fool around with. I think it's open in 15 markets in the U.S., but I think the idea is to expand internationally and do that quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and Sequoia, of course, has strong relationships in China. It's got Sequoia Capital China there. Uh, so this the deal doesn't really surprise me much. Right. And in small local setbacks like San Francisco, uh, pulling them off the streets temporarily so that they can get the right permitting in place. I think that's a small speed bump. Um, I think that, you know, these types of companies, though, uh, they have to be thinking bigger picture. And if I was a scooter company today, I'd already be thinking about what's next um, because I know, scooters are great. But look at what <laughs> happened with Jump and Uber. Right. So there's a lot of having acquired jump. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And there's there's a lot of room for innovation in this area. And quite frankly, uh, it is very capital intensive. In fact, uh, you see the number of these scooters piled up in front of the uh, Google buses. Mm -hmm. And you can already imagine like how many scooters are going to need to be produced in order to uh, really satisfy the market. And I I do think, though, that regulation is going to be an important part of it. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious what impact regulation has, but you know, we also have Lime, well, previously Lime Bike, which is going to raise or is supposed to be raising about a quarter billion dollars as well. So if that happens, we'll have about a half billion into the two leading uh, only scooter companies here domestically. And you know, I, the way that I think about this is this is going to be an epically brilliant bet, or we're going to look back and say that was the top of the market and that was silly. Um, but I don't get paid to actually figure that out. I just get paid to watch. So I'm kind of curious, you know, in like two years from now, how we're going to look back at this moment and it's going to be kind of like ridiculous or fantastic. I, I don't see a middle ground option that kind of coming to the, come to exist. Scott, I'd be interested in your thoughts on this too. There was a report in the information, I think maybe a week or two ago, that reported that Travis Vanderzanden, who is the CEO of uh, Bird and formerly worked for both uh, Uber and Lyft had taken some money off the table already, which you see in some cases, a Groupon uh, sort of was maybe the most famous example, this uh-huh. coupon company based in Chicago that did eventually go public. A lot of the people, insiders, uh, took money off the table really like within the first year or two. But you don't see it very often. This seems really early on. What, what do you make of the fact that uh, he reportedly did this? Well, this is a trend that we're starting to see now in the venture industry getting pulled back earlier and earlier. Secondary offerings is what they're called, typically where founders or other employees get to get some liquidity um, at some point before the company actually exits or, or goes public. Um, usually we would see those, you know, a few years back, we'd see those in later stage rounds, C rounds, D rounds, or even later than that. And I think uh, a trend, uh, particularly this year, is we're seeing more and more uh, liquidity for founders happen in earlier rounds, as early as, well, in this case, you know, a very, very early sure. round, a B round. And so I think uh, it's at a $2 billion valuation, it gets very, um, you know, economically beneficial for a founder. I mean, it's it's giving up very, very little of their, the equity that they have. Um probably doesn't have all of his uh, equity vested yet, but that's okay. Because for a small portion of that, you'll be able to take some money off the table. And uh, if that's what it takes to get a deal done, a lot of these deals are really competitive. And so in a lot of cases, uh, founders do have the upper hand and can dictate some terms of that of that sort. Right, right. But I guess it does sort of go hand in hand with the company's sort of valuation skyrocketing, as you mentioned. Oh, yeah. So it happened really quickly, but also this is allegedly the fastest company to get to unicorn status. Right. 
in the history of tech, which, you know, I'm not sure that's completely accurate, but. <laughs> I mean, you put yourself in the shoes of an entrepreneur who suddenly uh, over a very short amount of time has a $2 billion company and someone comes along and says, hey, you know what? Uh, for a fraction of the equity that you've vested so far, you can take a lot of cash off the table. Would you say yes? Maybe I, I think you might. Oh, right, <laughs> right. I would, but I thought the entire idea of having you know vesting structures and you know multi-year periods to fully vest was to uh, align incentives. I mean, VCs always talk about this. And if you're the VC that's going to put the most money into the round, so you win access to it or whatever, and you let the founder take you know money off the table, you're disaligning the incentives. I mean, it just strikes me as antithetical to what VCs have always told me about how they set up business transactions. And if the market's that hot for this sort of deal, doesn't that kind of imply that things are probably a bit overheated? I mean, well, uh, this you you're you're absolutely right. We are this is an exact example of why we are in the bubble that we're in right now. And of course, uh, we would love for every one of our entrepreneurs to uh, you know keep all of their equity in the company and uh, you know uh, wait until the the exit to to final uh, to to get to liquidity. But again, being in the environment that we're in right now, very competitive in, in many cases, um, you know, hot companies and the entrepreneurs who have co-founded them have an upper hand and they have an opportunity to negotiate these types of terms. So it's, it's very different uh, than what a traditional uh, VC play might have looked like even a, a year ago. Okay. Well, let's, let's talk so, about another big round uh, that we mentioned actually a little bit ago, which is the lift round. So a couple of numbers on that for everyone. It was a $600 million raise at a 15.1 billion post money. So about like a 4% uh, share sale. So it just wasn't that much. Um, and Fidelity led it. And according to, I think it was techmunch.com, uh, Fidelity has now put about $800 million into Lyft. And one stat that really kind of blew my mind was that Lyft has raised $2.9 in primary since April of last year. That's not that long ago to raise that staggering amount of money. And even more kind of nuts was that in July of 2017, per uh, Kate Clark from PitchBook, uh, Lyft was worth $7.5 So it's essentially doubled its valuation in roughly a year. Um, while raising a ton more money. Um, so kind of the same question about the the state of the market. This seems kind of nuts to me, but for Lyft, what a great transaction. They got so much money for just such a small fraction of the company. I'm super impressed by it. I think it's interesting too that um, you know Fidelity uh, got more involved. Uh, another investor, I think, I'm not sure if we can say it co-led the deal or it was just another major investor behind Fidelity is a, a New York-based hedge fund called Senator Investment Group. And of course, um, both Fidelity and hedge funds tend to get into deals sort of very late in the game, uh, soon, you know, as a, as a liquidity event is approaching. I wonder what the deal says about uh, Lyft's plans to go public. As we know, and I think we've talked about on the show before, Uber is sort of talking about the second quarter, second half of next year. So I kind of wonder if this transaction signals in any way that Lyft is trying to, you know, beat it out of the gate. I don't really know. Um, but I think it's also interesting that some earlier investors did not re-up in this round, including uh, Alphabet and Capital G, which is Alphabet's late stage venture group. I don't know if anybody has any thoughts about that. Sure. Well, in some cases, um, they're either there's not enough room, um, and so they they don't have an opportunity to re up. So that that could have been it. I, I'm not close enough to to it to uh, know the answer to that one. But one thing I can say is that 
as of May, Lyft uh, claims to have 35% of the U.S. ride-sharing market. And so they, you know, over the past year, they've really accelerated and they, they've really made some great headway against their rival Uber. And I think a lot of that acceleration and sort of that momentum and excitement around this company is partially what drove that valuation jump. You kind of layer on top of that just what's happening in the market dynamic with privately, privately held companies. Um, this is a very exciting company. Um, you know, I, I tend to think my, my opinion, maybe it's uh, not uh, shared by many, but I think 600 million is actually a very small number. I think they could have gone and raised quite a bit more, particularly because they're looking at to, to expand internationally and the cost we've seen the cost of uber trying to expand into uh different regions uh globally it can be very very expensive and it could be a, a huge shock to the business to try to do that they're also moving into they they want to there's there's a, a rumor that they're going to be making a 250 million dollar acquisition of a uh, bike, bike company, uh, bike company. Mm -hmm. um, and that's very capital intensive as well so you, you just wonder are they going to get into food delivery the way that uber is if they're trying to do all of these different things six 600 million actually starts to sound like a relatively well, small I number. I think that's a great point. And I wonder if they wanted to raise more. You know, they did uh, enjoy a huge lift from all of Uber's problems over the last year. But I think that that... Oh, unintended. <laughs> exactly. But I think a lot of that um, momentum has maybe not stalled, but has sort of plateaued somewhat from what I understand. So, you know, and now, you know, Dara is this, you know, sort of white knight at Uber. Yeah. It's just, it'll be interesting to see whether that gap will uh, close or sort of, you know, widen again. This is a really important year, I think, for both companies. And one thing that uh, a large uh, financing event like this does do is it it sort of begs the question, well, how, how much does that actually pull out or push out the IPO event? Um, does this delay us by 12 months, by 18 months? Are we actually going to see Lyft and Uber because they both had a recent financing? Or it, does that mean that it could end up in the second half of 2019 or later? Mm -hmm. So there are some implications there as well. So that was a strategic decision. Yeah, they really I mean, they've got a lot of money. So I was kind of complaining about this kind of weird, small, round size in the broader you know, ride sharing pantheon. And uh, Kia over at Axios was like, you know, look, this is probably more about acquisitions than anything else. They don't really need the cash. They had several billion on hand. I forget the number. I could find the tweet for us. I'll, I'll put it in the post. But, you know, I don't think they were really raising a bunch of primary because they needed cash to operate, um, which means that their balance sheet was already so strong that they, you know, it, it's a position of strength and power. So why go public when you could give yourself another two, three quarters uh, to get the numbers looking good? No one wants to go out and be box again. You know, remember when Box tried to go public and had to like refile like, you know, 12 months later, whatever it was. I think everyone's trying to avoid that. But uh -huh. 600 million is going to go reasonably far in Lyft's kind of burn environment, I think. But uh, before we spend the entire podcast on transportation, we'll just mention this and move on. But uh, Uber is back in London after uh, losing their license back in September of 2017. They're going to pay a fine. And essentially, this is the work of uh, kind of Dara's new Uber. Uh, coming to fruition in a way that is material. So good for Uber to be back in London. Uh, no more tube for everyone there. But uh, we're going to move back to Sequoia, ironically, and talk about their new $6 billion raise, which isn't actually that new. It was re-reported this week by the Financial Times. But Connie, it kind of came up months ago, right? How long ago did we first hear about this? 
Yeah, it's interesting. The Wall Street Journal had reported on this um, capital being sort of uh, committed back in April, but for some reason, it really sort of caught the world's attention when the Financial Times uh, reported it anew uh, earlier this week. And it is certainly interesting. And our sources confirmed to us that that money has been raised and that they are targeting $8 billion. Uh, And, you know, the um, director of uh, Sequoia Capital China, Neil Shen, told the Financial Times, you know, things have changed. Uh, You know, I think he sort of made uh, an effort to sort of separate what Sequoia is doing from what SoftBank Visions Fund is doing. And I say that because everyone has sort of said Sequoia is raising this money because there's this giant new kid on the block, not kid, giant kingmaker, (laughs) SoftBank, uh, which has raised a $100 billion fund. Its own CEO, Masayoshi Son, has said, this is just the beginning. We want to raise uh, one of these funds every two or three years. And so everyone sort of naturally assumes, and I think correctly, that Sequoia is uh, largely reacting to that. Um, I don't think they want the Vision Fund coming into their later stage deals and saying, hey, guys, uh, here's, you know, here are our terms. They might not sort of sync up with Sequoia's terms, but we have all this money. Uh, so uh, do as we say. I think Sequoia wants to be able to back its own companies as long as it needs to. I think it wants to sort of, you know, be able to say, guys, we've been with you from the outset and we want you to stick with us and perhaps not go with the Vision Fund. In any case, Neil Shen also, <clears throat> excuse me, told the Financial Times that things have changed, you know, sort of as we've been talking about here with Bird and Uber and Lyft, you know, these companies expand globally really quickly. They're just much more capital intensive than they ever have before. And if you want to, you know, play in the game, you can't just be writing a hundred million dollar checks. Sometimes you have to write <laughs> much larger checks. But what's amazing, we're talking about just, you know, t- amounts of money that we've never talked about have been in the past. Sequoia Capital's last global uh, growth fund was $2 billion. I'm not sure when they closed that, maybe last year, but those are not the only funds, or this fund is not the only fund that it's raising. It also uh, is raising reportedly a $2.3 billion uh, China Sequoia uh, fund, or Sequoia China, Sequoia Capital China fund. Um, The firm is raising another growth fund in the US. It's kind of hard to understand how these different pools are going to be kind of differentiated. Yep. Scott, what do you well, think about it? Well, I, I would say, first of all, this is a pretty exciting time in venture, uh, no matter how you look at it. Um, we've never seen anything like this before. And I think the, one of the things that this points to, though, is the general shift toward international thinking in venture. Um, and, you know, Sequoia is not alone. There's a lot of other firms uh, who are really thinking about, okay, we're going to build great companies. It might be in the U.S., it might be, but these companies are going to become global companies faster than they ever have before. And so we need to start thinking ahead about, you know, what is it going to take to get those companies into those regions and to, into a healthy place where they might one day exit. But the other sort of the silver lining on this for earlier stage funds is that, it, it, there's, it creates this optimism toward raising, being able to raise a larger round later uh, to help grow uh, these businesses. Because mm-hmm. if you're a, an A round or a B round uh, VC firm and you've got a really hot company, you know, turn the clock back a few years, five years ago, you wouldn't have had that same optimism to say, you know what, I have a capital intensive business that wants to expand internationally. And I just don't know if we're going to be able to raise right. that 50, 75 or 100 million dollar round because mm-hmm. they're just what there weren't those mega funds out there right. uh, to be able to do that. But the, and then the sort of the, the, the darker side of that silver lining is that it also has the potential to push out IPOs. 
because you know you start it re- companies that would have exited potentially earlier now starting to think well let's just do a secondary offering mm-hmm. and just extend out and just get our you know build our business make it larger so that when we do actually uh, get acquired or we go public we actually the you know the company looks even stronger on paper so there's that's also another consideration for earlier stage investors, knowing that there's going to be potentially a longer road to exit. Can I ask, does Norwest do international investing or is it something that the firm is talking about? We do. We do. Um, We have partners actually in India, in Israel um, and here in the U.S., um, so we do uh, we do invest internationally because there's so many really great firms in Silicon Valley that are still only investing in the U.S. and it's sort of interesting to me. I mean, I feel like Sequoia did it right. I mean, I don't think people were necessarily paying very close attention here, but 12 years ago it set up these shops in India and China, and now they're really reaping the rewards. And it's sort of a little bit late for other firms. There were other firms like Kleiner Perkins and among others, that sort of tried to get into China, backed out a little bit. Another yep. firm that's there right now is GGV Capital. Um, but having those networks there right now are like, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes the magnitude of those deals, uh, particularly in China, can be a magnitude greater than what we're used to seeing in the U.S. Mm-hmm. So uh, having a local presence there, I think, makes a lot of sense. And those are that's a strategy to me that has a long, a much longer term vision uh, than just simply trying to reach out and, and make smart moves from the uh, United States or somewhere else. Right. Well, one thing that I want to that I want to circle back to is just the six billion dollar number because I was uh, looking up Norwest Venture Partners before uh, we started recording, and according to Crunchbase, you guys have like between seven or eight uh, billion uh, over like eleven funds. So essentially, what Sequoia is trying to do is raise the entire history of Norwest Venture Partners in a single <laughs> go for one vehicle. And I, I don't I don't bring that up to sound rude or anything, but just to show kind of the scale of of how but much capital that is. Sure, yeah, sure, it's, it's a staggering yes. amount of money and we almost kind of move on from it. Like, oh, there's also, you know, 2.3 for China and whatever. How are they going to return a multiple of that, let alone a venture capital, you know, friendly multiple? I mean, it's, they're going to have to see so much. Oh, value Alex, creation. don't be a, don't be a, a buzzkill. Why do we, why do we have to talk about exits? I, I, I'm so I mean, boring. Like, that's knows? my personality. Like, I mean, I, I don't, no, I what know. are they going to do? Find I mean, the next 10 Facebooks? How are they going to return that capital? Well, you know, I think probably like Vision Fund, its return profile is a little bit different. And we've talked about this maybe last week or the week before, but it's not looking for venture type returns. It's sort of looking for private equity like returns, which are a little bit different and less aggressive. Um, So I think that's probably a big part of it. Yeah, that's very true. I think the charter of every uh, fund is very different. And if you're raising a hundred billion dollar fund, you know, your your goals and sort of your exit profile that, that you're looking to model is going to be very different than an earlier stage fund. Um, and the types of companies and the types of opportunities that you're even open to are going to be very different. Um, so, yeah, I think there's a lot of strategies that work. But right now we're starting to see these mega funds with a whole new set of strategies that are making a lot of folks scratch their heads in the industry, trying to understand how does that strategy actually work? Because we don't have the answer. We yet. We don't have the answer yet. But it, it uh it's, it's Sequoia and uh, Vision Fund are not alone. I think KKR is also raising or just raised a huge, huge China-focused fund. And mm-hmm. so the private equity firms are also, you know, paying attention and reacting. Well, uh, there's another new fund out that is a bit more normally sized, if you will. In fact, it's just as big as Bird's latest round. Um, and Andreessen Horowitz is, is the company in question. They're putting together a crypto-focused fund uh, with their very first uh, woman partner, and uh, Katie Huan, or Han. Uh, and Chris Dixon. Uh, and, you know, it's funny to talk about this. When I first saw it, I was like, ooh, $300 million. That's so much money. What an interesting play by Andreessen. 
And now after this, you know, last 10 minutes of conversation, I kind of want to giggle <laughs> about how small it is. It feels like a pretty modest wager. But so far as I can tell, the, the critical thing here is this is a crypto focused vehicle. So uh, some VC funds have certain rules, like they can't put more than 20% of their dollars into crypto related stuff, but this won't have that constraint. So the wager is, is, is on. And now the question is, you know, where will crypto go? as a market per se in the next you know, 18, 24, 36 months. As we record this, uh, Bitcoin just slipped under the $6,000 mark. Um, so I don't know if that's karma or a, you know indication of where things are going to go. But Andreessen now is a flexibility and cash to really pursue an aggressive, uh, I don't know, Bitcoin friendly uh, strategy. So Scott, do you guys invest in crypto right now? You know, I, th- I, I like to bifurcate this whole conversation, though, because we, there's one uh, group of investments that are really about investing in the, the crypto coins and currencies and tokens themselves. And then there's the underlying blockchain technologies and various different chains um, on which you can build. Uh, you know, consumer and enterprise technologies. And from my point of view, I think one of the most interesting thing that's happening is with that underlying blockchain technology. And so far, we're, it's so nascent that we still haven't seen a single company that, that really stands out as a leader in consumer yes. or enterprise. And so those are the types of companies that I'm getting really excited about because I know it's going to happen. And the tech is rock solid. And there's so many different flavors of this, you know, Ethereum and, uh, you know, ERC20 and the different flavors there. And then you've got Neo and you've got other different technologies that we still have so many technical hurdles to overcome, whether it's transaction performance or uh, whether it's scalability. Um, but the great thing about it is that so many cool companies like banks uh, are, are starting to look at this private chain. And then you, you've got the public chain as well. And then I am personally interested in the technologies that are going to power the infrastructure and allow us to build great companies. So the security companies that are looking at how do we encrypt and secure transactions on chain? How do we increase the performance of transactions on chain so we could actually transport, you know, high definition video? Mm-hmm. Um, how do we how do we actually enable all of the types of companies that all of us here, and I'm sure our listeners have heard over and over and over, supply chain, medical companies, uh, transportation companies, logistics. What are the what are the underlying technologies that are actually going to enable those to be built? And that's kind of what I'm looking at and getting excited about. Sure. I mean, every company that we know right now could be rebuilt or replaced by a you know new sort of blockchain-based company. What's interesting about Andreessen is, well, first, this is not new to Andreessen. They've been sort of looking at this, and Chris Dixon, a general partner there, especially for the last five years. They've made 20 investments already prior to uh, setting up this fund. I talked to Chris this week about the fund. Um, they have not announced any deals out of the fund yet, but he said that there, some are being um, finalized. Um, but he and Katie, uh, who was also on the call, were pretty candid about it being so nascent that they don't really know what the exit profile will necessarily look like. You know, mm-hmm. you talked about tokens and uh, even all the sort of types of companies that you're talking about. Yeah. I think the idea is they are each going to produce sort of a kind of token around their business that will rise in value as the company is built. And those tokens will become more valuable over time. And yeah. those tokens will trade on exchanges like Coinbase and a growing number of other exchanges. And that's where they'll get their liquidity. But it's still sort of, it's it's surprisingly um not surprisingly, but you know, it's it's just sort of shocking in a way how sort of 
early on in this uh, ball game than yeah. we really are. Yeah. Um, and, it, you know, other ways the, the fund differs is, uh, and they were very candid about this as well, is, uh, you know, VCs tend to, obviously Scott knows this very well, uh, try to get about 20% of a company typically. Uh, you know, they want a meaningful stake in the company so that if it goes, if it exits, uh, the, the return uh, justifies the expense. With crypto investments, it sounds like it's sort of just very different. You're not going in and saying, I'm going to, you know, somehow buy 20% of this company. I mean, even sort of buying the um, stake is structured very differently. Some are equity investments. Some, have Chris and Katie had said, are, come with sort of token provisions, meaning mm -hmm. if the companies create a token, investors can get access to them. Um, but it's it's really uh, very, very, very early. And yeah. um, I, I applaud these guys for sort of... Um, carving out this fund. I think a lot of other venture capitalists are sort of, you know, kind of taking a wait and see approach. And I, I'm sure this uh, effort's going to be followed very closely. Yep. I, I think it's important and something to pay attention to here is that a diverse portfolio and a diverse strategy where uh, the ability to invest in both tokens, uh, currencies, and also a lot of the deals that right, we're seeing right. now are actually equity deals, especially early on. Mm -hmm. Even if they decide to do an ICO later or offer token sale in one, one form or another. So there actually is an opportunity to get early on to actually um, uh, buy some equity in some of these companies. And you're right. I mean, liquidity uh, is going to, it's still a challenge. We don't know what what liquidity at institutional scale is going to look like. And I personally believe that we're probably three to six years out before we see any big enterprise companies uh, built on the chain, built on blockchain technology. I mean, there are none now. There are none, right. and we're we're all talking about mm -hmm. this, but yet we don't have a single example right. that we can point to and say that is the leader, and everyone should should follow suit. So I think I think we're a ways out, and that's why it's going to be a really exciting field to study, and we're going to see so many different and creative ways to you know tying uh, you know currencies to tangible assets. You know, again, we hear a lot about that. Again, I still haven't seen it. Can I ask? So, in terms of your sort of deal flow, I mean, how many sort of related entrepreneurs are you talking with on a, on a weekly or monthly basis who could potentially found that startup that you're talking about that doesn't exist yet or hasn't gained well, well, I, I, I put companies into two categories. One is a group of entrepreneurs who had a fantastic business idea mm -hmm. and they said, you know, we're going to build a company and it's going to revolutionize. I'm just going to make up something, the logistics industry. And it just so happened that blockchain was the best answer for how to do that. Mm -hmm. we, we evaluated all the different architectures and technological approaches and this was it. And so those are the companies to me that I get the most interested in. Then there's the others. There's the other ones that back into it. They say, I want to build a blockchain company. I want to build a company on top of Ethereum, and it's going to be great. We just don't exactly know what we're going well, to do yet, but we're going to run an ICO naturally. anyway. Uh, but Those I'm curious about you know, how much of this doesn't doesn't work out. So you're on the optimistic side of this, but you know I covered the Filecoin ICO pretty carefully back when that was going on, and they raised about a, what, about a quarter billion dollars roughly, and they still haven't launched yet so far as I can tell, and that was some time ago. So if these enterprise-scale, valuable, you know, industry-changing companies are going to be formed I haven't even seen the seeds of that yet. And this is, you know, what, 10 years now after the initial Bitcoin white paper kind of brought this into the world. So as more money goes in and still nothing comes out, I struggle to hold on to the optimism that I used to have that would mirror what you currently do. Now, I'm also a big naysayer and a negative Nancy, so I could be wrong for sure. 
But I, I just, you know, without there being any decentralized application, for example, back to your you know, ERC-20 point, uh, with more than like a couple hundred DAUs, that's just zero uptake still after all the money has gone in. Um, yeah. so I'm not, I'm, I'm maybe not as optimistic as you, as you think I am, Alex. I, you'll notice we haven't made a single investment yet. So <laughs> and, and really good point. We, we do see, I would say at least a dozen uh, new companies a month, and I may be underestimating, who are doing something on uh, building on the blockchain or, or utilizing the blockchain in one way or another. And I think a lot of firms, Andreessen Horowitz included, are only investing in, so so Filecoin only allowed in accredited investors. And uh, Andreessen Horowitz was very involved in that deal. But I think it's because people are, you know, just want to be careful. There's sort of risk layered on top of risk here. And, and um these sort of initial coin offerings which have become available to people who are not accredited investors uh, could certainly backfire in a lot of people's faces. <laughs> so in any case, I think we have talked for probably as long as we have today. Scott, thank you so much for coming in. Well, really, thank really you so much for you. having me. Alex, we miss you. We'll, we'll see you next week, hopefully. I'll be back in the studio next week. All right, everybody, thank you for listening, and a big thank you to Matthew Lindley, Connie Loizos, our producer Christopher Gates, our executive producer Henry Pickovet, and we will see you all right here next week. Hey.